Today's scripture passage is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should, be, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thank you, Jaron. And now please turn to Jonah chapter 4. If you are one who watches the clock, you may be discouraged to know the one I'm watching does not work. Um, <laughs> but you can wave your hands if this gets too long. This is our final sermon from, the chap- from Jonah. And as we've talked about before, the, the children's versions of, of this story tend to miss some of the details, and I think particularly this chapter is the one that, that is most often um, given little attention. But without this chapter, we, we miss the biggest part of the story of Jonah. And the fact is, we tend to be uncomfortable with it. Um, we don't quite know what to do with Jonah. He's no longer the hero. He's no longer the faithful prophet. We want the story to end on a high note, and we see that the disobedient prophet repenting of his rebellion and then going and preaching to Nineveh, and they repent of their sin and turn to God. And that's a great story, if only it would stop at chapter 3. And it's been a great plot. We've looked at this, the man of God running from God, and then God pursues him in the storm on the ocean. He gets thrown overboard to save the rest of the men on the boat. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He prays to God from the bottom of the ocean, and God answers in his distress, and he proclaims salvation is of the Lord, and God causes the fish to spit him out on dry land. And then God calls Jonah the second time, gives him another chance, tells him to go to Nineveh, and so Jonah goes, and he declares that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And so the whole city, from the king on down, humbles themselves and repents and cries out to God and and turns from their evil ways. 
And so we see chapter 3 ending with the good news that God saw their repentance and their turn from evil, and he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And so there's a lot to learn in these first three chapters of Jonah. We, We talked about how running from God takes you into this downward spiral. We talked about turning your face to God. When, when you hit bottom, he hears you and he delivers. And then we talked about the repentance of Nineveh. The king came off his throne and humbled himself and turned from evil, and God saved them from destruction. But in this last chapter, we don't look at the action as much through the lens of a camera. We're not looking so much at the scenes unfolding in front of us. I'd like to... to take the camera away and and, and put a mirror up in front of our faces. All the attitudes and the judgments that we may have developed about the other players of this story are now reflected back to us. And Jonah, the man who was swallowed by the fish, becomes one of us. And the attitudes and sins of Jonah come close to home. So now the questions that God is asking Jonah are the ones that he's asking of me and you today. And then we realize the hero of the story isn't the fish. It isn't the prophet of the, the, uh, the one who obeyed the second time that he was asked. The hero of the story is the God who saves. And the point of the story is to demonstrate God's mercy. And, and we see that the small love and the, the arrogant perspectives of the prophet, they're exposed by a God who offers mercy instead of death. He offered mercy to the prophet, and he offered mercy to the city when neither one deserved it. So let's read our text, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint." And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. As you read this, the one thing I was struck by was the fact that Jonah was a man of intense emotions. When God relented 
of this disaster that he said he would bring on Nineveh, Jonah was displeased. He was exceedingly displeased, and he was angry. And then God appointed the plant to shade him a few days later, and he was exceedingly glad. And then the plant is destroyed, and he's exceedingly angry once again. And and we find the word angry five times in this chapter. But the the question I would like to look at is, is why all the anger? Why should Jonah be angry at the success of his mission? You you would think that the carnal response to, to the overwhelming success that he experienced would be pride. So he would be like, look at me. I'm such a good preacher that the whole city repented. And so he could have developed a program for his evangelism success and marketed his strategies. You know, three steps to altar calls or how to convict the cattle. And he even had this testimony to go with it, how he nearly died in in his rebellion and and God saved him miraculously. But what what is it that, that Jonah is responding in anger to? The text doesn't tell us specifically, and and commentators have different perspectives on it. Some say that Jonah was concerned about his own reputation. So he had entered the city preaching this message of destruction, and and God did not destroy it. So maybe he was upset that his prophecy wasn't fulfilled. Maybe he was embarrassed that the message of doom did not occur. So he may, may have felt exposed as a false prophet. And so the anger would have been a selfish response to this kind of dent in his reputation. And others suggest that Jonah was angry because he was patriotic. The the prophets Amos and Hosea warned that Assyria would be the country that was going to destroy Israel as judgment for the sins of Israel. And so it would be to, to Jonah's advantage, as well as the rest of Israel, if God just destroys the Assyrian city of Nineveh to kind of even the score. And so maybe Jonah was so concerned about the future of his country that that he wanted to take Nineveh out. But I think he was not driven by patriotic zeal or by embarrassment. I think it's something deeper and more sinister than that. And I think that the term for it is, is his religious zeal. He's not angry because God spared the enemy of Israel, He's angry because God showed mercy to someone who is not Israel. What you see is not patriotic anger, it's religious jealousy. And if if you look at at his prayer in verses 2 and 3, I think it it points at this. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And so he's he's angry at God's mercy. He's angry that God loves these people. He's angry that God spared them from destruction. He doesn't say anything about his concern for Israel. He never references Israel's future destruction. And if that's where, we, where he would have gone in his anger, we, we might be able to excuse it a little bit. But he, he goes after something deeper and, and more serious. And, and he really assails the very character of God. And, and as he does that, he obviously reveals the lack of those characteristics in his own heart. And, and he's doing this out of a, a deep anger that the word literally means he was hot, and for Jonah, like the rest of us, the ability to think logically ends when we become 
angry. But, but he was so passionate about his illogical conclusions, there was no amount of reasoning that would change his mind. But we, we've seen a lot of, of emotions uh, from Jonah throughout this story, but this is the first time he's been angry. You know, he's been disobedient, he's been disengaged, he's repented and praised God, he was obedient. And, and if he had a feelings chart, he, he'd have probably covered most of the feelings on that, on that chart. But right now, he's in the angry side. And his anger here is very deep anger. Eugene Peterson says about anger, and this is a rough quote, anger is most useful as a diagnostic tool. It is a signal that something is wrong. Diagnostically, it is virtually infallible, and we learn to trust it. What anger fails to do, however, is tell us whether the wrong is outside or inside us. When we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us, wrong information, inadequate understanding, or an underdeveloped heart. And, and so most angry people, he says, don't stop to consider where their anger is coming from. When they feel anger, they assume that the wrong is outside of them. Someone is doing them wrong. And they don't stop to consider they might have wrong information, inadequate understanding, or an underdeveloped heart. And I think it's important though, that we don't ignore anger. It's a signal that something is wrong. But the anger is only diagnostic. It tells us something is wrong. It's certainly not therapeutic but we should stop and consider what is happening. So what, what's happening here in Jonah? Where was the wrong? And so it's hard to see a wrong outside of Jonah, even though that, that's where he projects the wrong at. But what, what was going on inside of him? Well, he had the right information. God did spare Nineveh, Nineveh from the disaster he had promised. That, that was the information, and it was true. So he also had an understanding of God, at least an intellectual one, and he shows it by, by what he talks about, by what he says. He's, he's quoting his Bible as he accuses God of being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God said this about himself in Exodus 34 when he was speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And these words are repeated throughout the Old Testament. In Joel 2, God calls his people to return to him with all their heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and to rend their hearts and not their garments, because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And again, in, in Nehemiah 9, that the people are confessing and repenting their sin, and part, for a quarter of the day, they read from the law, and for a quarter of the day, they confess their sin. And part of their confession was recounting the history of God dealing with his people. And, and so they say, um, starting in verse 17, it says, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. 
and committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. So this, this was the character of God. This is the way he interacted with his people. And, and yes, his people sinned, and, and they spent, sinned in spectacular ways at times. And they were punished in, in spectacular ways as well. God didn't overlook their sin. He, he judged their sin. And many people died as a direct result of their sin. But at the end of the day, God did not give Israel everything they deserved. And if it hadn't been for the intercession of Moses, God would have destroyed them all in the wilderness. So over and over, God has been relenting from the disaster they deserved and giving them grace and mercy. And and so he's preserved his people for his sake and so that his name would be magnified. So Jonah was right in his understanding of God as a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. The problem was not in Jonah's information. It was not in his understanding. The problem was in Jonah's heart. He did not have a place in his heart for this kind of mercy. He did not have a category for God showing mercy to a people like Nineveh. He confessed God's grace, but he did not have a place in his heart to see it extended to those who didn't deserve it. He confessed a God of love, but he had no place in his life to let God love the unlovable. Because you see, Jonah was a child of Abraham. God's people were the people, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had promised that he would bless the world through these people. They had become a great political nation, but they had failed as a political body to demonstrate the love of God. And they failed to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as it says in Habakkuk. And, and really, the, the people of Israel lost their focus. They were either focused on themselves, they, they became curved in on themselves, or they lusted after the heathen nations around them. And, and God warned through the prophets that, that this country was going to be destroyed. The prophets invited and, and pleaded and warned the people to repent and to, to return to worshiping God and to serve Him and care for the people around them before God's judgment fell on them. And, and now this, this God of mercy and grace and forgiveness is extending His mercy to the heathen city of Nineveh. And it's not fair that God is showing mercy to them and Jonah is angry. C.S. Lewis gave a speech in which he talked about inner rings, and it's been said it was one of his most profound speeches. So he didn't create this concept, but he was, he was describing what is an unavoidable part of every society. It happens in, in families and schools and churches, in the workplace, in professional life. It's part of any setting where there are human interactions. And by inner ring, he was referring to an informal circle of relationships in which there are people who are on the inside and people who are on the outside. And the ones who are on the inside operate by an unspoken set of rules and assumptions. And the people who are most aware of the presence of the ring are not the ones who are on the inside, but the ones who are on the outside looking in. And the harder a person tries to get on the inside, the more outside he feels. And I think what we see here in Jonah is the realization that the inner ring of God's love is bigger than Jonah thought. It is larger than Jonah's heart 
had room for. His assumptions about who deserves grace were shattered, and the unwritten rules that he had about who should be on the inner ring were violated. And in that realization, he began to feel he was on the outside. So perhaps the only thing more disturbing than being on the outside looking in is the knowledge that at one time you were on the inside, and now you are not. And Jesus told a story about a person like that. It's a story we know well of the prodigal son. And it, it is helpful to re- remember the circumstances in which Jesus told this story. So in, in Luke 14, he says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he goes on in chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the scribes and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So which side of the ring do you think the Pharisees and scribes thought they were on in relation to God's favor? And, and we see what Jesus is starting to do with those assumptions. If they haven't already been thrown out of the ring, they're at least uncomfortable that the ring of God's grace is bigger than what they assumed. And then this, the, the story of the prodigal follows. And, and we know how the younger son rebelled and ran away and wasted his life on reckless living. It was a downward spiral. He hits bottom, comes to his senses, turns his face towards home, and returns to his father in humility and repentance. And his father saw him a long way off and comes running after him and and embraced him and kissed him. And his son was kind of doing his his confession, and, and the father said, let's celebrate, let's have a party. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we see the father not only accepting his son's return, but rejoicing and, and celebrating in his son. And then the older brother comes in from the field, and so what, what's this all about? He sees the party, and the servant says, well, your brother has come home, and your father is celebrating. But what was the brother's response? He was angry, and he refused to go in. You see, he was on the inner ring of his father's mercy. His father told him that all that was the father's already belonged to the older brother. But the older brother could not tolerate that ring being large enough to accommodate his younger brother. The message to the Pharisees was clear. God's mercy is larger than their tight and tidy rings supposed. Not only was it larger than they supposed, they were at risk of being thrown out because of their refusal to be effective agents of God's kingdom. So let's, let's return to Jonah and, and look again at his anger. He's angry because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he says, I, I knew it. I knew you were like this when I left my country. And notice how he says my country in contrast to this, these you know, heathens in this other country. So, so we can agree with, with Peterson when he says that anger is diagnostic and anger tells us that something is wrong. There is something wrong with this picture. 
And Jonah is convinced that God is the problem. So he externalizes his anger. He, he projects it onto the man in charge. And he says, it's all your fault. Therefore now, O Lord, just let me die. But Jonah doesn't stop to, to trace his anger. He doesn't acknowledge the wrong that is inside of him. And God, in a gracious, merciful, slow-to-anger type of response, says only, do you do well to be angry? And, and he's, he's trying to slow Jonah down. Your, your anger is going to destroy you. Your anger will be the death of you if you don't slow it down and trace the path to the wrong in your own heart. So, so we see Jonah doing what he's done before. He disengages. He doesn't respond to God. He can't stand even to be here in the city anymore with all these humble, repentant, God-fearing foreigners. And so he, he leaves the city. And notice which direction he went when he left the city. He sat to the east of the city. And I think it, that's, that's significant. Throughout the Old Testament, going east was generally associated with moving away from God's blessing or from God's presence. When Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, cherubim were placed on the east side of the garden. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled east of Eden. Lot journeyed east after separating from Abraham. Abraham sent the sons of his concubines eastward, and Solomon built high places for foreign gods on the mountains east of Jerusalem. So not only is Jonah leaving the city and the people who have experienced God's mercy, he, he leaves and sits on the east side of the city, and at least symbolically distancing himself from this God of unfair mercy. But, but he sets up camp. He, he makes a booth. He's going to hang out here for a little bit and see what happens when maybe God comes to his senses after all and destroys the city. But we see God hasn't, hasn't forsaken Jonah. And, and so God makes this plant that comes over him and, and provides some shade. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. But the next day, a worm attacks the plant and it withers and this scorching east wind hits him. And, and Jonah is miserable again. And he's lost his, his shade and now the wind is killing him. And, and so Jonah had been in no mood earlier to, to dialogue about this. And so God basically uses object lesson. But Jonah just repeats what, what he said earlier, I, I just want to die. And God repeats his previous question, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And, and so Jonah's response makes it clear why he wants to die. He doesn't want to die because he's suffering, because he's so miserable. He doesn't think it's better to be dead because of his physical discomfort. He wants to die because he is so angry, angry at the plant, angry that his comfort was taken away. And so God responds to Jonah. He makes a comment and a question. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being and perished in a night and perished in a night. And then he asks Jonah another question. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. In other words, he's saying, Jonah, your circle of mercy is you and your plant. You, you did not invest anything in the plant. You have no equity in this plant, and yet you care about its passing. You care more about the plant than the city of Nineveh. 
And God asked, should I not pity Nineveh? This is a city with hundreds of thousands of people. God cares about these people. Even in their evil, they, they were people that he created. They were people that he sustains every moment by the word of his power, just like he does us, even though we don't acknowledge him. But he still longs for them to know him. He still wants to show his mercy to them. And when they turn their faces and humble themselves, he embraces them and welcomes them. And and should he not have pity for these people, and even for the cattle, which are worth at least a little more than this desert plant? And that's the end of the book. We're not told how Jonah responded. Did he repent of his arrogance and hostility? Were his eyes open to the wideness of God's mercy? Or did he sit and sulk in the sand until the east wind blew the life out of his shriveled soul? The Bible doesn't tell us. But God is asking us the same questions today. Jonah becomes a mirror by which we evaluate our own hearts. It's not about Jonah anymore. It's about you standing before a God of mercy. Will you pity those he pities? Will you be the image of Christ, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love to those who do not deserve it? This has implications for our lives on on many levels, but the the one I would like to consider is not a a theological question about how God decides who to have mercy on, or a a church question about how we should uh, determine culture. The the question I asked this morning is a personal one. Who have you excluded from your ring of mercy? Who do you need to forgive? Who are you keeping at arm's length? Who in this room, in in your family, or in your workplace frustrates you, makes you angry, gets on your nerves, has caused a wall of separation to develop between you? If there is someone in your life like that, beware lest you become like Jonah or the older brother. You see, we always place ourselves inside God's ring of mercy. We feel that we belong on the inside. We justify our anger. We explain our exasperation. We rationalize our resentment. We defend our displeasure. But at the end of the day, if we persist in our petulance, we are effectively placing ourselves outside of God's ring of mercy. And like Jonah or the older brother, you may find yourself standing on the outside, looking in on God's party, because your ring was not big enough for those God has forgiven. Jesus warns, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. Jesus summed up all the law and the prophets with, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to assume that all of us here today have been hurt by someone at some point in the past. And I'm also going to assume that some of you are still hurting. Some of you have suffered because of another's careless words or thoughtless actions. Or maybe it was intentional, done in malice. Maybe it was a one-time offense, maybe a series of offenses. Whatever the situation, the call of Christ is to forgive, whether it happened five minutes or five decades ago. And the verses in Matthew 18, just before our scripture reading, 
give the pathway to restoring right relationships in the church. You care about justice. You care about your honor. You care about wrongs being made right. But God cares about more than that. God cares for the soul. He has made each of you in his image, and he longs to see that image reflect more and more of his glory. Will you enlarge the circle of your grace? Will you forgive? Are you willing to do the hard work of restoring broken relationships so that the overflow of God's mercy will cover all the areas of your heart as the waters cover the sea? Do you dare to withhold mercy from others when God has lavished it so abundantly on you? Let's have a song.